If you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and go to John chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. You can uh, have you access those. Um, you also have our church app. To, there's a place on there to take notes and a place on there to, to access Scripture. But we are continuing this series on hope. So over the last few weeks in April, we have been journeying to this idea that you and I, there, there's no doubt about it in our life. We're going to have challenges. We're going to face struggles, difficulties, temptations are going to come your way. That, like We can't avoid that. It's happening. It is coming. But the truth is you and I have the ability to choose hope in spite of all of those issues. And Isaiah talked about this in the Old Testament. We, we've been kind of using this scripture out of Isaiah 40 as the basis for this uh, series. And it says this. Look, even if you're youth, you're going to go tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not go weary. They will walk and not be faint. And it's just this amazing picture that, look, you can put all the hope in your physical well-being and your mental outlook and your circumstances, but there is only one thing that will help you move beyond all those things when they fail, and it's hope in the Lord. It's actually learning to place to choose to put your hope in the Lord. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but in my life, like, it, it is sometimes a very clear choice. Like, I have, you know, man, this is what I am trying to accomplish in my life, and God, this is what you want me to accomplish. I remember growing up, I think I've told, told some of you this before, I really, like, and I had it planned out, I wanted to be President of the United States. Like, it was my dream. Like, I, from an early age, when people would ask, I'd always say, and they're like, yeah, you'll grow out of that. And I was like, no, I really wanted to, to be president. And uh, But I remember one day, I was sitting, I was actually teaching at a camp, a, a, a church camp, and God just got a hold of my heart, and he asked me basically this question. Do you see more joy and hope in your life out of your dream or out of me? Which Which one? And it wasn't like he's saying you have to pick one, but he's saying if you want to choose one, which would it be? Do you want to do you want to set the direction and the hope and the everything for your life? Are you willing to trust me? And it was a turning point in my life where I really turned from trying to say, what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish to asking God, what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? And I can look back at that day and it was one of the best days of my life as I, I see where God began to to change some of my direction. And, and I did think in two six, 2016, I was like, I should have run for president in 2016. It's like, God, what are we thinking? But, uh, but like, it just, uh, like, it's one of those times where we have to decide uh, in our own lives. And sometimes that's a daily choice. Like today, am I going to look for hope in God or am I going to look for hope in my circumstances? And so what we've been doing over the last uh, few weeks is journeying through this life of Jesus. Not through the best times of Jesus' life, but at the very worst times. When he was arrested, crucified, uh, when he was beaten, uh, eventually killed, and then buried. I mean, these are not good days for Jesus. It's the time when his friends desert him, really people abandon him. And in in spite of all that, he chooses hope. He still lives with a hopeful attitude. People that he comes in contact with, he brings hope into the life. We talked a couple of weeks ago about his interaction with Barabbas and how Barabbas was this unwitting, maybe, recipient of hope. He thought he was going to be killed, and all of a sudden Jesus has taken his place. And then we talked about last week about these two criminals on the cross. 
both kind of demanding that Jesus do something for them. One saying, you know, save us. And the other saying, will you just simply remember me? And we talked about all the anxiety of that moment. And Jesus chose hope and he demonstrated hope even over anxiety. And today we're going to pick up another interaction that takes place just a couple of days after where we found Jesus on the cross. So again, we found him when we left Jesus last week. He was hanging on the cross between these two criminals that were arguing about who he was and what he should do. And then on that day, later on that day, the, the best time we can tell, listen to the scripture, uh, Jesus was crucified about nine in the morning, by three o'clock that afternoon. He'd been on the cross for six hours. He finally passed. He finally died. And just to make sure, they came and pierced his side uh, with a spear. Uh, they, he had been ridiculed, tortured, and they were made sure that he was dead. And then that afternoon, they took him off the cross. Two men, one named Nicodemus and one named Joseph of Arimathea, who had been both part of the religious leadership of that time, came to take Jesus' body and to bury him. Now, these were, again, two religious leaders that had disagreed with what had happened. And they wanted to honor Jesus. And so these men take Jesus' body, and I want to give you just an idea of, like, what typically happened after people died in those days. When I was in Jerusalem last year, it really changed my understanding of the tomb. Because here's what would happen. They would take a body down, and they would go place him in a temporary tomb. And in that tomb, they would roll a stone in front of it, and for three days, any part of three days, that body would lie in that tomb. And then I guess they had had some problems over history because after three days, they roll the stone away or move the stone away, and they come and check that the person was actually dead. Now, I guess that's a good thing if, like, you happen not to be dead, like you were just passed out from a fever or something. You're like, I can, in three days, they're coming to check on me. Like, I will get out. But, uh, but typically, they would roll the stone away, and after three days, they would still find the person dead in there, and then they would prepare the body uh, for the next a year, and they would wrap it in grave clothes and treat it with spices, and they would help the body decompose. And at the end of that year, at the end of one year, they would come and open up the tomb again, take the remains that were there, place them in a small box called ossuary, and then they would take that box and, and then bury that in a burial tomb, a different place often, uh, a family tomb that it would go to. And so this tomb that Jesus was laid in, was he was there. Uh, it, was, it was only meant to be a, a temporary place for him in, in more ways than one. And, uh, and in that moment, like when we're starting to see some of these things played out, it's going to be interesting to see the timing of some of these things that are going to happen in this interaction we're going to look at. The other thing I want you to see about the tomb is that the tomb was actually designed to be a place of mourning. Jewish culture has different mourning seasons that they set up. There's a seven day, which is also often called Shiva. When you've talked, maybe you've heard that where somebody comes and sits Shiva with somebody for seven days. Then they have a 30 day mourning period that they mourn the death of someone. And then if it was somebody in your family, somebody very close, you actually have a year-long mourning period that you would mourn for that year until you rolled that stone away the last time, come in and then place them and place them at rest. And then annually for this close family friend or this family, you would annually on the, the anniversary of their death would remember their death. And so we're going to pick up this story and we're going to see that like this is actually beginning to happen. So if you got your Bibles, John 20, verse 1, and we're going to see what happens here. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, let me just give you a little timeline here. So this was Sunday morning. 
the crucifixion had happened on Friday during the day. Again, it ended about 3 o'clock. They had buried Jesus on that Friday evening before sundown because at sundown it began a new day by the Jewish calendar. And that new day was the Sabbath. It was the time where people had to rest or they had to get him off the cross and into the grave. No one visited the tomb on Saturday because it was the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to go out and to do any work. And then the next morning, the Sunday morning, actually the part of the third day had begun. The third day had actually began on sunset of Saturday. And so Mary is coming to the tomb early in the morning. Now, why is she coming? What did we just learn? She's actually coming to check to make sure Jesus was dead and to then prepare his body for the year-long burial. If you look in some of the other passages of Scripture here that uh, uh, recount uh, this time it says that there were actually a couple other women with mary and they were pondering on the way there because it was so early like who's going to move the stone for us like we can't move the stone it typically takes a group of of people to move the stone and they're like we're not adequate to move the stone and i can imagine maybe the other women were like mary why did you get us up so early we should have waited till the disciples got there so we can get the stone out of the way and they get there and mary sees the stone is gone and Again, when she got there and this stone had been removed, her immediate reaction that we see there is that somebody had taken away the body of Jesus. She, she immediately thought the religious leaders had come in and maybe got to the tomb before her and opened it up. But the truth is this. Seeing the stone removed should have been the first sign of hope for Mary. It should have been the first sign of hope. Uh, and as I mentioned, in other accounts, people came and it's not that the stone was moved. That was a big deal. That probably would have happened on that day anyway. But the fact that it was moved so early, before sunrise, before anybody else would have come and done it. It would have made people think if you were be able to look beyond your sorrow, something unique is happening here. Instead, Mary thought someone else had beat her to the grave and had taken Jesus' body. Look, she doesn't know what to do. So in verse 20, or in verse 2, she does this. She ran and went to get Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple here is John. For some weird reason, he likes to re- refer himself as the third person when he's writing. And uh, it's you're like uh, when they did that in Seinfeld, like George. So anyway, uh, but the one and then he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. The other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, he's saying me. Uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary, thinking that someone had robbed the tomb, didn't know what to do. And so she ran to the two closest people to Jesus, which was Peter and John. And they were just as shocked as she was. And so they immediately ran back to the tomb. Look at verse 3 and see what happens here. It says, so then Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going on toward the tomb. But both of them were running together. And then I just love this part. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> like, John, John's just like this little crafty guy, right? I mean, he's just throwing this. I'm, I'm faster than Peter. Just to, just to know, I don't know what Peter's going to write about this later, but I got to the tomb first. That's what he's doing here. Just, maybe there was a little competitive spirit between Peter and uh, John. And then stopping to look in, Peter, or John stops to look in. He saw that the linen clothes were laying there. But he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. And it was not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, this 
the details in this narrative are very important because every act that Jesus did in this moment and, and literally every act he did on this earth, he did with meaning and purpose. And when we see the linen grave clothes had been left behind in a pretty specific matter, we, we actually see this is not an accident. And so seeing these clothes should have been the next sign of hope for Mary and the disciples. The clothes left behind certainly meant that they weren't grave robbers that came in and got Jesus. They would not have taken the time to, to unwrap Jesus and take Jesus and to fold up something and leave it behind. They would have just left with the entire body. But also, the way that the grave clothes were left was very significant. If you go all the way back to Leviticus 16, it's when uh, the law of Moses was laid out and God had given the law of Moses of customs of how to approach the temple and how to sacrifice. And he gave some very specific instructions on how the high priest on the day of atonement would enter into the Holy of Holies. If you're not familiar with Old Testament sacrifice once a year on the day of atonement, the priest that was set aside for this specific task would walk into the place where the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, that Ark of the Covenant, not that one exactly, but the Ark, the actual Ark is sitting in the holy place and he would come in and they would sacrifice an animal. He would sacrifice an animal for the entire sins of Israel. It was a big day. It was a momentous day. And here's what he would do when he would go in. He would go in wearing one set of clothes. But as he got into the Holy and Holies, he would take those off and he would put on linen wrappings. He would wrap himself in the linen cloths. And there are very dis- direct things about what he needed to wear. And then he would make the sacrifice. And after the sacrifice, he would take those linen clothes off again and he would fold them up and leave them and put on the other clothes and go back out. Now, if you were Jewish at that time, you understood in detail what happened on the Day of Atonement. You maybe had never been into the Holy of Holies, but you knew what happened in there. You knew that the high priest that was making the sacrifice for all of Israel was going in on your behalf wearing linen clothes, and when he came back out, he left the linen clothes behind, folded up. And so if you're Mary, you see this, and you would think that seeing these garments, she would have begun to realize that something unique was happening. The stone had already been moved. There are these linen garments that are a great representation of a sacrifice and what it means to sacrifice for someone else, but she couldn't see other re- any other reality than someone had stole the body. Jump down to verse 10, and look what happens next. Then the disciples went back to their home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the head of Jesus had lain, and one, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. If you read in the scripture here, you, it says that John begins to understand and maybe believe that something unique was happening. Peter just went home confused, but Mary was still overcome with sorrow. She stayed at that tomb weeping uncontrollably. The fact that Jesus was dead, his body was gone, and if not found, she could not mourn correctly. Something was happening, something was that she could not control. And when she looked inside, she sees these two angels. Now, I don't know. Maybe that would have been another sign. You know, you're seeing these angels. But what does Mary do? She's like, do you know what Jesus is? 
Did you see anybody taken? I mean, she's still got this one reality that she is basing everything off of, that Jesus is dead, there is no hope, and she has to do her job. But even the presence of these two angels don't break her out of that. The angel should have been the next sign of hope. Because not only were these two supernatural beings suddenly appearing in the tomb, but their placement in the tomb was very unique as well. The way John records it, he records two very specific details. One is sitting at the head, and one is sitting at the feet. The other image that almost every Israelite would have known would be the image of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was where the Ten Commandments and the law were housed. As I mentioned earlier, it was placed in the Holy of Holies. It was, it was a place where the presence of God was dwelt. And on the top of that Ark sat two angels, one at one end and one at the other. And what was inside was the law. And the law was what allowed them to have communicate her community and relationship with God as they tried to obey the law. And so you walk in and there's a bench about the size of the ark and sitting on there are two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. If you were a Jewish person that day, you would have immediately recognized the symbolism of that imagery. The imagery, this is where the presence of God was. This is where atonement has been made. This is the work of God. But Mary was still overcome with sorrow and still was not choosing hope. The stone, the clothes, the angels, she still could not see what was right in front of her. But what I'm so thankful for is that Jesus does not leave us in our despair. I don't know about you, but I've had some moments in my life where I've been like Mary, where I have just felt at the bottom. I don't see any other reality than the pain and the hurt I'm feeling. I've told the story before of when I was a junior in high school and a friend that I had grown up with, his name was David. We were at prom together and he'd had a bad night and we're standing there and he told me, Patrick, I just don't want to live anymore. I can't take it. I just want to end it. And I said, David, we'll talk tomorrow. And I was coming home that night. David lived up the street from me and as I was coming home, I saw police cars and ambulances in front of David's house, and he had shot and killed himself that night. And the despair and the emptiness I felt in those following days of thinking the guilt that was washing over me of what I could have done, what I could have said, how that could have been different, what I could have done years ago, what I could have done in that one night, I just couldn't see any other reality. Sorrow had overwhelmed me. Friends would come by, people would try to encourage but I could just see one reality. I remember when we got the news, Katie and I were sitting in a hotel with, with PJ and Natalie in the south side of Atlanta, and we got a phone call that Katie's dad had been in a bad accident at the beach. We didn't know how bad at that point, but we just said, you need to come. And they were in Jacksonville. We began the drive down to Jacksonville, and on that drive, we kept getting phone calls and texts letting us know that it did not look good. And by the time we got there, we knew that her dad just had hours to live. And the sorrow that came into that car, the sorrow that we felt as we were driving just grew heavier and heavier. And that's all we could see. It was hard to see beyond that. And I'm sure you all have had moments like that in your life. Maybe that's not been related to death. Maybe it's been related to just a circumstantial time when everything seems to not be going your way. And what I want you to hear this morning is Mary 
was there. She was overcome with sorrow, just like you and I. And God kept sending her signs to say, don't forget, look. And she didn't see them, but he didn't leave her in her despair. And here's what we see next in verse 14. Having said this to the angels, she then turned around and saw Jesus standing. But still, she did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where have you laid him and I will uh, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Mary Magdalene went, verse 18 says, and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Finally, we move from just signs to the actual appearance of Jesus. And I don't know, maybe Mary's eyes were just red from weeping and she couldn't see clearly. Maybe the light wasn't full in the morning yet, or maybe she just couldn't in her mind conceptually believe that Jesus was alive. And so when she saw someone, instead of even looking at him and and thinking that this might be her hope, she just kept repeating the same question. But when Jesus replies to her and he calls her by name, she has a realization. And I've had moments in my life where it just felt like Jesus said, Patrick, Patrick, don't forget me. Don't allow this sorrow to consume you. Maybe when she heard that voice, it immediately took her back to the first time she met Jesus. When we look in Scripture, the first time we hear about Mary Magdalene, it says that uh, she was from a, a town. It's called Magdala. That's why she's called Mary Magdalene uh, in a fishing village just west of where Jesus had been. And when Jesus met her, said she was having such emotional and physiological and psychological problems that people had described her as being possessed by seven demons. Like she, her, her world was not good. Her world was going down in a hurry, and Jesus healed her. Jesus brought hope into her life. He spoke, and his presence and his word and his teachings radically changed her life. And she went from that day being this emotional wreck described as being possessed by seven demons to now following Jesus, giving to Jesus, opening doors for Jesus, introducing people to Jesus, says that she became one of his most trusted followers. An amazing story. And she thought she had lost that. And then she hears the word Mary, and it all comes back. I I imagine maybe some of those demons were coming back into her life of self-doubt, of self-hate, of like guilt. All these kind of things were coming back. And when she heard the name Jesus, it stopped and it changed. And she spoke the word Rabboni, which means teacher, but can also be means a great way to to, to, uh, translate that is the word authority, authority. It means she realized very quickly you are the authority in this situation. In the midst of my sorrow, you are the authority. God is the authority. Now, why don't, why don't we live this way? Why don't we allow that to happen? When, when something bad comes into our life, why don't we immediately just say, all right, God, I, I need you. Help me. I just You solve it. I'll, I'll be happy. I'll be good. Because that's... It's not reality, and it's actually not what we're called to do. 
Because being, there's a difference between being sorrowful and grieving. When difficult things come into your life, it's okay to grieve. The Bible says to grieve. It says to, to mourn, but it says to do this not like those who have no hope. First Thessalonians tells us that. But we don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Sorrow is choosing to grieve with no hope. It's choosing to think that this is it, that this issue in your life is the authority, and God is not the authority. Why do we do that? I think there are three reasons we do that. One is this, because we limit our perspective. We have a limited perspective. We, we see this, and it consumes our thought. We think that we're the only one that has ever dealt with this. This problem is unique to me. And we isolate and insulate ourselves from other, and we start saying things like, nobody else understands me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. And we close off, and we only see it from our perspective. We don't let somebody else who has walked the path that we've walked come and walk with us. We isolate insulate and we close our perspective but the second thing we do is then we embrace pessimism well if that's going wrong what else is going to go wrong like if this is the way my day is starting i can't wait to see how it turns out right i mean it's just we embrace pessimism everything's against me no one is helping me i'm the victim no one will really nothing will go right for me me right now and even when good things come into your life when you have this idea you think I can't wait for this to go wrong. And we start even seeing blessings as opportunities to be hurt again. And we start carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. And then I think this is the third thing we do, and this is the challenging part, is we actually distance ourselves from the pain. And here's what we do. We, we know we're hurting, but instead of dealing with the pain, we actually keep it at a little distance. We don't process it. We don't walk through it. The goal and when we have pain is this. The goal is not to get back to normal. I remember when I dealt with death, both of those deaths, I remember people would come up to me and say, don't worry, things will go back to normal. Can I tell you? They never got back to that normal. Never. And they never will. The goal isn't to get back to normal. The goal is to get through the challenge to the next normal. The next normal. And then guess what? I'm going to face another challenge, and I'm going to need to get through to the next normal. But when we distance ourselves from the pain, we never get through it. We try to find ways around it to avoid it. And Jesus is saying, I'd rather take you through it. And when we do this, when we don't deal with it, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And it doesn't just define our current reality. It starts to define us and me. I become associated with this sorrow. I'm the one who lost this person. I'm the one who lost my spouse. I'm the one who lost my job. I'm the one who has this disease. I am the one that's this or this. And the pain, because we don't deal with it, starts to define us. And this is what Mary was doing, right? She couldn't see beyond her own view. Even when Jesus was showing her all these signs of hope, she couldn't see any other explanation than the worst. I mean, she wanted to just do her job and deal with Jesus' body instead of really dealing with the pain of feeling of loss that she had. But Jesus didn't leave her in her sorrow, and he doesn't leave us in ours as well. He will always give us a way to let go of sorrow and choose hope. And let me show you how he did that for Mary and how he does it for us. 
And the first thing is this, is remember this. Remember there is a pathway out of the pain. There is always a pathway out of the pain. Do you remember the stone? I mean, remember the stone? It was rolled away. I want you to see, there is no obstacle too big that God cannot get it out of the way for you. He had already, before they even got there, he had made a pathway. There was no obstacle too big. There was an open door to experience that was sure to bring hope back into their lives in that morning. And Jesus will open pathways of healing for you. Here's Psalms 118, 1 and 2. It says this. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's a promise. And he will provide a pathway. That's what these words that describe him, rock, deliver. A deliverer makes a pathway out of the pain. And God will do that for you. But second, remember this. Remember there is always a picture of restoration. Pain is not designed to destroy us. That's not the role of pain. Do you remember the linen grave clothes? The picture of the meaning of Jesus' death was to provide complete hope for the restoration, not of Israel, but for all of mankind. The death of Jesus provided restoration for you and I to experience true salvation, true healing, true forgiveness with our creator, God. Jesus can use our worst pain to interweave our lives with him in such a way that we can actually end up, believe it or not, looking back on the pain and calling it good. And that's crazy. I mean, Romans eight twenty eight says it this way. And I hate it when people throw this verse like out at a uh, funeral or something because it's like it's, they're basically telling you, just feel better. But that's not all what it means. And he says this, and we know that for those who love the Lord, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Your pain can be a pathway to restoration. It's not that God did this to you so that you can learn something, but God will use it to grow you to a deeper dependence and a deeper peace with him. And the last thing to remember is this. Remember the unfailing promises of God. These promises of God are bigger than our pain, bigger than our sorrow. Do you remember the angels sitting in the way they demonstrated the Ark of the Covenant, that this idea that a covenant is an unbreakable bond. And this was a covenant God made with man. It is unbreakable. His desire to love you, to bless you, to walk with you, to be with you, these are unbreakable bonds. Things that will not go away. I want you to hear this. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. He promised to never harm us or to leave us with no hope. Instead, he gives generously in times of need, abundantly in times of grief. Just like Mary in her time of grief, we may ask, where is Jesus? Where is he gone? And the answer is the same for us as it is for her. He's here. He is near. He is with us. My question for the day to you is this. Would you listen to the voice of the Lord as he calls out to you in the midst of your sorrow? Just like he said, Mary. And she knew that he was the authority in that moment. 
Would you hear him in whatever you may be going through in this moment or in future moments or some pain that you have not chosen to deal with for years? Would you hear Jesus calling out your name this morning and realizing he is the authority over that? That pain, that sorrow is not the authority. It does not own you. It does not define you. Jesus is the authority. Just like he called out Mary, would you listen to his voice today? Would you remember that his promises are unfailing? Nothing can cause them not to be true. Will you remember that even in pain, he is restoring you to a deeper connection with him? And would you remember that in every pain, there is a pathway through it? If we'll just listen to him call our name. Will you pray with me?